so we're kicking off uh, again in our um, series in, in 1 Samuel. We've had a couple of weeks away from it. Uh, had some really fun Sundays, didn't we? We had uh, uh, our family fun day um, a couple of weeks ago, and then Roy Todd with us last week, and all the baptisms, and lots of people saying they wanted to make Jesus the Lord of their life, and, and some healings happening, and really, really great. So, um, but before that, we'd got up to chapter 23 in the, in the book of 1 Samuel. So naturally, picking up today at 24, and we're going to have a look at 24, 25, 26, and then briefly touch on 27. So uh, this is a little bit like a three-course meal with a sort of add-on coffee at the end if we've got time. Yeah, that, that sort of idea. And um, one of the things that I really like about these chapters is that they remind me of one of my wife Emma and I's favorite TV programs. And uh, this is called Hunted. I don't know if um, any of you have heard of it. It's on 4OD. And um, the the general idea is that a, a whole group of contestants are given one hour to go on the run. And uh, after that point, um, the state, as it were, uh, tries to catch them. And everything they do uh, flags up. So if they draw any money out of a machine or if they make any phone calls or buy any tickets or whatever. And uh, the idea is that it's a bit like them being fugitives on the run. And uh, the, the, cap- the captors have to try and catch them. And um, uh, they're not trying to get to a particular point. They're just trying to stay on the run for 28 days. And if they get to the end, then they win part of a cash prize or whatever. And uh, my wife wants everyone to win. I want everyone to be caught. And uh, you can tell which is the adventurer and which is the lawyer amongst us, can't you? So there you go. But it's a little bit like what's going on in our story today. Because we've got this guy, David, who's got a promise from God that one day he will be king. But the current king is still on the throne, and his name is Saul. And uh, perhaps understandably, he has started to get a little bit threatened by David. Uh, David keeps having all these different successes. People seem to be bigging David up up more than they are him. And uh, so Saul, who's gone absolutely crazy by this point, has devoted his entire kingship to pursuing David to try and capture him and kill him. And so David is on the run, trying to evade capture. He's not going anywhere, he's just on the run. And uh, he's got a promise from God, but it's a long way from fulfillment. He's in the wilderness, Saul's still looking strong, and he's basically just waiting for Saul to die. He's waiting. We're all waiting for different things, aren't we? I am waiting for my daughter Lizzie, who's five months old, to say her first words so uh, I can get in there and teach her to say bath and grass and not bath and grass. (laughs) I am waiting for my holiday, which is soon to happen. I am waiting for my football team, Stoke City, to finally get rid of our 18 million pound misfiring midfield misfit who has done absolutely nothing for us. I'm waiting for what God's got next for us as a church. He's so good to us, isn't he? He's always got something next. I wonder what you're waiting for. All waiting for different things. I wonder what you're waiting for. Maybe it feels like you've got a, a promise from God that hasn't yet been fulfilled, and you're in the wait. Well, I want to look this morning at what these chapters have to say on the topic of waiting well. 
So let's dig in. Shall we serve up our starter? This is chapter 24, and um, this story is called The Robe. And uh, it takes place in an area called Engedi, where David is, and Saul has gone to try and capture David. And so David and his men are hiding out in a cave. Uh, David's got about 600 men with him, which I think is about Notts County's average home attendance. Yeah, is that right? Yeah, yeah. I'm getting scowls from Dick. And... Um, they're, they're in this cave, presumably not all of them, given there's 600 of them. And Saul, who's trying to capture David, happens to enter the cave, sit down, and uh, he's there to, what the Bible says, relieve himself. And uh, if you're wondering if that's what it sounds like, then yes, it is. And uh, you could call this story Saul's alternative throne, you know, if, if you wanted to. And um, so he's there, and David's men are saying, look, it's Saul. God has given him into your hands. You could take him right now. You could kill him right now. And this whole wait would be over and you would be king. And the literal translation of the text is that David looks on Saul with compassion. And he decides not to kill him. But what he does is he, he takes a corner of Saul's robe, a sort of a sign that I could have killed you, but I didn't. And Saul finishes his business and, and goes on out the cave, and, and for some reason, David has this massive attack of guilt. You know, well, why was that? He, he didn't kill him. Well, the thing was, in those days, robes were a massive deal for the king. Because the king's robe symbolized his authority, and it symbolized his victory. And when kings were fighting other nations, what they would do is that they would take the robe of the, the king they just defeated, and they would attach it to their own robe. The idea being that the longer the robe, the greater the authority and the greater the victory. Which, of course, is, what, is why when a, a few hundred years later, when a guy called Isaiah has an encounter with God, it says the train of his robe fills the entire temple building. Total authority, total victory. So when David cuts off a corner of this rope, what he's actually doing is massively undermining Saul. And so he goes after him. And he says, look, Saul, I could have killed you, but I didn't. Here's the robe, because you're the king, and I'm not. And he's putting him back in his rightful place as king. And Saul's quite impressed with his decision not to kill him, and uh, seemingly relents from his pursuit of David, but is only momentary, uh, quickly returns to it later. But the whole point of the story is that David could have killed Saul, but he didn't must have been a huge temptation for him, mustn't it? To take matters into his own hands. To solve the problem. To grab the kingdom. Even his advisors were saying, you can become king now. Go on. How much of our advertising industry is based on you can have it now? Except David knew that sorting it out his own way, taking matters into his own hands, came a distant second to depending on God. And he said that Saul's king, God's put him in his position, God's put me in my position, and he's promised to get me through. You see, David chooses to trust God to prove faithful, and in doing so, he refuses the temptation to self-reliance. To self-reliance. Now, self-reliance is one of my biggest struggles. My name's John, and I'm self-reliant. 
And what it is, is it's this ridiculous line of thinking that has somehow got into me that the source of favor and blessing and power in my life is not God, but is in fact me. It's the kind of, it's all right, God, I've got this one covered attitude. And I'd never say it like that, obviously, because it sounds silly. But sometimes my actions would indicate it. You know, when a crisis comes, how often do I find myself trying to sort it out and frenzying myself with activity to make the way through rather than looking to God? When an opportunity comes to take a step of faith, so often I find myself looking inwardly and saying, I've just not got it in me. Our prayer life is another one. It's a huge indicator of self-reliance. When I see people and I think, I really love that person. And I do lots of things for them. But I don't really pray for them. I don't really look to God. I look to myself. Why don't you turn to the person next to you and say, I can't believe this guy struggles with this. Doesn't describe me at all. I've got it all sorted. Because the thing is that we all struggle with it, don't we? But the Bible's got something to say about it. And the Bible doesn't just say, don't be self-reliant. That's generally not the Bible's approach with things. What it does is it casts a better vision. You see, when my daughter Lizzie is crying, if I go to her and I say, don't cry, then even if she could understand what I meant, it's not really going to mean anything to her unless I cast a better vision for her. So I pick her up and I give her a cuddle. She thinks that's better, I'll stop crying. Or we go and see the pretty girl in the mirror, and so she stops crying. Or we feed her, which solves basically everything. <laughs> She's her, her father's daughter, after all. So what's the Bible's better vision? Well, it says that we don't need to lean on our own understanding, but actually we're to trust in the Lord with all of our hearts. And in all our ways, we're to acknowledge him, and he promises that he will make our path straight. I felt God speak to me about that recently using that verse. A time of confusion in my life. He said, you don't need to look to your own understanding. But trust in me with all of your heart. You see, the root of self-reliance is a heart that feels alone in the world. A heart that feels that no one's with me, so I've got to fight, I've got to sort, I've got to do, 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 because I can't depend on anyone else. Which is why it's so helpful that one of the ways that Jesus counteracted his own disciples' self-reliance was with the revelation that God is a good, loving, perfect father. And that changes everything. When you know that God is your father. A Canadian theologian called J.I. Packer who wrote lots of books, he said that to be right with God the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. You see, when you know God as Father, then you know that you are not alone. You know that there is someone constantly watching over you, someone who is always for you, and nothing takes place without his say-so. You know that you don't need to look to yourself as the source of life because he is your great provider and he is faithful to fulfill. 
And you know that you are part of his family, that he's committed to blessing you, and that he utterly delights in you because he is already impressed with you because of Jesus. You don't need to strain to impress him. You don't need to strive. You don't need to do good things to impress him. Jesus has already done that for you. And you can just enjoy the Father's love. The story's told about a guy called George Muller who ran an orphanage in Bristol in the 19th century. And he came down to breakfast one morning and found that there was no food for the children. There were hundreds of children in this orphanage. And he said, he gathered everyone together and said, come and see what God will do. And he prayed, dear God, thank you for what you are going to give us to eat. Amen. That's all he prayed. And a short time afterwards, there was a knock at the door, and it was the local baker who said that God had woken him up at 2 a.m. that morning and told him to bake bread for the orphanage because they'd run out. Immediately after that, the milkman knocked at the door and said, my milk float is broken down right outside your orphanage. Could you use the milk because I need to shift it? You see, when you know God as Father and the crisis comes... Your first response doesn't have to be self-reliance. It doesn't have to be frenzied, stressful activity. It can be, let's see what the Father will do. So you want to honor God in your waiting? Well, there's a better idea than self-reliance. And it's to know that God, your heavenly Father, and not you, is the way forward. Okay, so that's the starter. It's like one of those meals where you've had quite a big start and you're wondering if there's going to be more space for the, for the rest of the meal. But there you go. Let's move into the main course. This is chapter 25. Ironically, it is called The Feast. And um, this one doesn't involve Saul the king. Um, it involves David and this, and this guy Nabal. Now, his, his name means fool. So the idea is that everything that he does is, is very foolish. And um, it's festival time. It's the time when they were shearing the sheep. And uh, that was a big celebration at the time. And um, Nabal and David are, are both Israelite people. They're part of the people of God. And uh, David has been guarding The shepherds, David and his men, have been guarding the shepherds of this guy, Nabal, for months on end. This guy had 4,000 animals, and so they were basically helping the shepherds out. And not one of them was lost. So David thinks, I know, let's go to this guy, and let's remind him what we've done, and let's ask him to give us some food so that we too can celebrate this big festival that's going on. And even without the whole looking after the shepherds thing, culturally, this was completely acceptable. If you were a visitor in those days, you could go to any home and you could ask for food, and it was a completely acceptable idea that you would be given food. So David sends about 10 of his men, so he's not too threatening, and they go to Nabal, and they ask, and they remind him what's happened, and they make the request, and Nabal was like, well, who's this guy? Who's David? There's loads of people deserting their masters. Why should I give my meat and my wine and my bread to some guy I've never heard of? And it's hard to convey succinctly, but it's actually a massive personal insult. And David is furious. He is absolutely fuming. And so he says, right, me and my men, we are going to go and we're going to kill Nabal and every man that stands with him. He's that angry. And on the way over, 
And David, in the midst of his anger, his fury, Nabal's wife comes out. She's called Abigail. She's found out what's going on. And she comes to David and she says, David, look, I'm so sorry for what has happened. Let the guilt that's on Nabal be on me instead. And she, she brings him some food. And um, she's, uh, the Bible says she took loaves, so that's bread, uh, wine. Uh, she's got meat. Uh, she's got grain and raisins. That's a bit like salads. She's got figs. So that's like pudding. She brings him the ingredients of a barbecue. Yeah, basically. If you want to appease a man, give him the ingredients for a barbecue. But just don't cook it for him. And um, she appeases David with this food. And she says to him, look, David, I know you are furious. But whatever you are about to do, God is with you, so don't go, go and kill Nabal and his men. Because you're going to become king one day. And if you do go and kill Nabal and his men, you are going to become king with blood on your hands. And you are going to know that you took things into your own hands to try and sort out. And there's the self-reliance point again. And David hears what she's got to say. And he says, do you know what? It was a stupid idea. <coughs> And he doesn't. He doesn't go and do it. And basically, to super summarize the rest of the story, Abigail goes back and she tells Nabal, who has some sort of massive medical attack, ends up dying and David marries Abigail. So it <laughs> takes a little bit longer to, uh, to say that in the text. But the main point of the story is that Abigail saved the day. She saved David from doing something stupid. You see, this was not something that God had told David to do. Nabal was one of David's own people. One of the people that David was about to become king over. You could have expected better from the king of Israel. Abigail saves the day. And how does she do it? Well, she speaks truth into his life. I want to humbly ask you today. Who's speaking truth into your life? Who is it that's challenging your thinking? Who is it that's there when you're vulnerable? Who is it that you're thankful for, for saving you, perhaps from a mess that you would have otherwise have made? I'm not just meaning a, a mentor or a coach or, or necessarily just even any old friend but someone with permission to go deeper than that. Someone to be accountable to. Someone who can ask you the questions that you don't want to be asked because they know what those questions are. I think historically I've probably had two struggles with this. The first one would be that, ah, oh, that was just something for when I was younger. You know, as a teenager, testosterone-filled teenager just needs some accountability to make sure he doesn't do something silly. But you know, the difficulty is, I'm finding that I need that kind of thing more, not less. I find myself more vulnerable, not less. I find temptation is all around, and I need friends to help me through and point me to Jesus. I'm amazed by the number of books that I own who were written by people who love Jesus just like we do and yet made a spectacular mess of things. The older I get, the more I realize I need this. This is something for now and beyond. I think the second issue would be that 
but I don't want to be seen as a mess. I don't want to open up to someone and bear my all to someone because I don't want to be seen as a mess. I think sometimes in, in churches it can be super difficult because it looks like everybody else is sorted and here I am with my issues and it looks like everyone else has got it all together. It's really not the case. Really not the case. I just, I want to say this morning, it's okay not to be okay. Yeah? If as you come in this morning, you think, I've got this massive issue in my life, I just can't get free from it. Hey, we're family. Let's get through it together. We've all got different things that we're, we're struggling with. I think this is a particularly difficult issue for men. Because self-respect is such a, a, a big issue, being respected. But I respect an honest man more than I respect a man who's too proud to admit that he needs help. And the Bible says that we're to look at ourselves with sober judgment. And as I look at my life, I see that I need help from friends to point me to God, to challenge my thinking. And I need help from others more than I feel the need to be seen as sorted. Because when we're waiting, sometimes we can lose our reference point a little bit, can't we? When we're waiting for something, we get so excited by it. Sometimes our decisions can start to be formed by, informed by our own desires rather than the Father's will. So let's depend on one another to point us to God. And let's stay accountable. Okay, that's the main course. So we're moving on to dessert, which is a smaller point. And I know that some of you will have a moral objection to a small pudding. Yeah? But you can, you know, do some further research to elongate it or something like that. But um, this, this story takes place in a, a place called Ziph. And the Ziphites who live there, they basically shout over to King Saul or send a message and say, Hey, David is in our territory and you want to get him. So come over and you can get David." And um, so they, they head on over with their thousands. And um, uh, David's wised up to it a little bit. So he just sort of steps out the way momentarily. And Saul gets there with the camp. And um, he can't find David. So he sets up camp for the night. And uh, David thinks, here's an opportunity. Let's go into the camp whilst they're all asleep. And he goes in with his friend Abishai. And he works his way through all the soldiers right up to Saul. And the very same temptation is there again. Could kill Saul. And Abishai, his mate, sees the big spear that's by Saul and says to David, please, can I do it? I'll only need one stroke. I won't do it twice. See if that makes the situation any better. But David said, no. God has put Saul in his position, me in mine, and he's told me to trust him to get me through. And he says, we'll take the spear and we'll take the water jug. And they go over and they go far away. And then they shout over to the camp. And they shout this guy. There's a, a guy called Abner who's the sort of commander of the forces. They say, Abner, you're meant to be protecting Saul. Well, who's got his spear and who's got his water jug? And Saul wakes up. And again, he's seemingly quite impressed that David decides not to kill him. And it seems that he's relenting from his pursuit of killing David. But again, it's only momentary. Once again, David could have killed Saul, but he didn't. 
It's quite similar to the starter, isn't it? Chapter 24. And if 24 shows David's rebuffing the temptation to self-reliance, well, chapter 26 shows David's willingness to trust God's timing. Because he knows, as the writer of Hebrews chapter 10 says, that he who has promised is faithful. He who has promised is faithful. Because the hard thing when we're waiting for something is that we often have little idea when things are going to change. My wife Emma and I, one of the things we're waiting for is our daughter to sleep right through the night. She's not doing that yet. And when you're waiting, you can be tempted to try and fast-track the process, fast-track the wait. And if we could find a solution to Lizzie's sleeping, then we would go for it. Maybe not the put the whiskey in the milk, that maybe might be slightly too far, but if we could find a solution, we would. When we're waiting, sometimes we can even despise the wait. And I think we can identify with that. Sometimes we can let the waiting process get us down. Sometimes we can even think that God's forgotten us. But you know one thing I've learned? God is really not in a rush. He's really not in a rush. Because he's more concerned about our hearts than he is about our achievements. He's more concerned about our character than he is about our accomplishments. And God has given us a mission to fulfill, individually and corporately, to make his name known all across the globe. Well, why has he done that? Why has he chosen to use us? He doesn't need us. He can do anything. He's done it because the Bible says he wants to prepare a bride. He wants to prepare the church. He wants to get us ready for an eternity with him. He wants to prepare our hearts and make us more and more like him. And that's the point of the wait. You've been sent so that you'll be shaped. You've been given a mission so that you'll be molded. And you've been given a purpose so that you'll be perfected. Do you know, often in the wait, we begin to learn things over time about God, don't we? It happened for David. Psalm 54 is written right in the midst of this story. You can read it yourself. It'll give you the little introduction, and you'll see that it locates it right in this story, in this Ziph place. And you can see what he learned about God. Sometimes in the wait, we begin to learn things about God, don't we? And I want to tell you a story about a lady called Annie Johnson Flint who had a big weight. And she didn't know when that weight was going to end. She didn't know what was going on. But she learned something about God. And her story is that she was orphaned as a little girl. And then her own career as a teacher was cut short by rheumatoid arthritis. Soon after, her foster parents died. And her own health took a massive nosedive. She was bedbound for decades. She battled cancer, she became incontinent, and she started even to lose her sight. And in her later years, there were so many boils and marks on her body from being bedbound that she needed eight cushions just to cushion her body. And in the midst of that, she wrote this. And you have to forgive the slightly old-sounding terminology. 
But she said, he giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed and the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Wow. There's someone who's really learning something about God. There's someone whose heart is really being prepared for an eternity with him. There's someone who's embracing the weight. And do you know, as we, ask, as we embrace the weight, we begin to ask not how does this situation change, but how do I change? Which really is the very point of waiting. So there you go. Three tests in the wilderness. The robe, the feast, and the spear, which was the last one. Each one successfully passed. And the stories parallel the life of Jesus Christ, who himself was tempted in the wilderness three times by Satan. Command these loaves to become bread. Throw yourself down off this cliff. Fall down and worship me. And yet Jesus passed these and every other test in total obedience to and reliance, reliance on his heavenly Father. Jesus is actually in each one of these stories. I wonder if you spotted it. See, in 24 and 26, starter and pudding, well, like Saul, we're oblivious of the danger that we're in until we're confronted by the one who we have rejected, who should judge us, but instead looks upon us with compassion and allows us to leave freely. In 25, the main course, like Nabal, through our own stubbornness, we refuse to acknowledge that we owe a debt to someone who would rightfully judge us if it weren't for someone else who satisfies his anger and pleads our case on our behalf. You see, Jesus is the one who makes all of this possible. And how? Well, because he did what David did in chapter 27. And here's a quick coffee to finish. That in 27, because of the mess with Saul, David goes off and he lives amongst the Philistines, the, the, Israel, the enemies of Israel. And the Bible doesn't really say whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, but it just says that he was separated from his people and from the worship of their God. And in doing so, David echoes the work of Jesus Christ who took on himself our separation from God, our shame, our mess on the cross. And in rising again, he won a victory that means that we can now wait with eager anticipation because as that song I read out says, our Father's full giving 
has only begun. So let's depend on our Father, not ourselves. Let's depend on each other to point us to him in our moments of vulnerability. And let's embrace what the Father's doing in our lives. Because out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Let's have a